One of the ways that the elder leadership team serves me is by means of an annual uh, performance review. And I happen to have uh, several copies of this year's uh, performance review. And if you are uh, interested in this 11-page document, um, yeah, it's very thorough. Uh, it has self-reflection, so I do some self-evaluation, and then the elders review that, ponder that, and then uh, offer their um, appraisal. And so that happens uh, every year, and it's of great benefit to me. Uh, I wish every employee had the experience of having a leadership board committed to helping me be the very best that I can be. And so you're welcome to read it. I just have limited copies. That doesn't mean I can't get you a copy if you want one. I just made enough for what I thought people might be interested in in both services. The elder leadership team, as I look over that document, they give me three types of feedback. Um, they give me appreciation. They give me coaching. They give me evaluation. Uh, the appreciation motivates and encourages the spirit. Coaching is about increasing knowledge and skill and then evaluation is basically where you stand as an employee, right? You may continue to serve at Windsor Road Christian Church, things like that. Uh, and we, we need all three. Some of you work in job environments where, you know, it's just all evaluation, right? If you're in the NFL or if you're in collegiate athletics, at some point, it's pretty much evaluation. Wins and losses, that's it. Or maybe just you know, quotas for the company in terms of sales or um, a grade, what have you. But our hearts really need all three types of feedback. And we need evaluation to know where we stand. We need coaching to accelerate learning and uh, improvement. Uh, and we need appreciation to know that what we're doing uh, makes a difference. I think the whole idea of an annual performance review can cause anxiety for many because of the way feedback is both given and received. Uh, there's a helpful book I found called Thanks for the Feedback, the Art and Science of Receiving Feedback. Listen to what the author said. When we ask people to list the most difficult conversations, feedback always comes up. It doesn't matter who they are, where they are, what they do, or why they brought it in. They just talk about how tough it is to give honest feedback, even when they know it's needed. Probably because, um, you know, of just, I don't want to hurt your feelings. That, that kind of factor. Um, they speak of performance problems that go unaddressed for years, and then explain that when they finally give the feedback, it doesn't go well. The worker is upset and defensive and ends up less motivated rather than more. So giving feedback is a challenge, but here is an often overlooked observation, and I found this book to be helpful. How does one become skilled in receiving feedback? This even goes beyond jobs. But the authors say this, nothing affects the learning culture of an organization more than the skill with which its executive team receives feedback. 
Now, you can substitute a lot of different words for that. Nothing affects the learning culture of a family more than the skill with which the family members receive feedback. You see? So learning can be accelerated depending upon how the learner receives the feedback. And that leads us to this very helpful passage of Scripture that as you're reading, you just think, well, I didn't think I was going to see this type of wisdom, but it just shows up. We want to deal with it. I'm thinking about Exodus chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus. You'll find Exodus 18. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to read uh, select verses from Exodus 18, Exodus 18, 13 to 23. You'll find that on page 60 of your church Bibles. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, offers candid feedback to Moses about his leadership. Moses' positive response to this feedback affected the entire nation, organization, Israel. It affected Israel's peace. It affected Israel's longevity. It affected Israel's health in ways that reach our culture today. More on that later. But for now, follow along with me as I read this, this very interesting passage of Scripture from Exodus 18, verses 13 to 23. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any, any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. This is God's word. Now, I find this very interesting and really unexpected. You know, Israel has been in Egyptian slavery, and uh, God, through Moses, with ten plagues upon Pharaoh, finally relented, allowing Israel to be released only to then to go back and try to get Israel, putting her back into slavery, leading us to the miracle of the Red Sea, in which Pharaoh's military was decimated, 
Then there's manna from heaven, and then there's water from a rock, and then there's, in Exodus 17, a, a battle. And then we're leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Between this is a story between a father-in-law and a son-in-law. What is that about? Why is this here? Well, part of it is that we need to understand where this fits into the entire scheme of Scripture. Exodus is part of the first five books of the Bible called the Law or the Torah. Now, when we think of the word law, we're thinking of code book with legal statutes. And there's a little bit of that in Exodus and on to Numbers and Deuteronomy, but, but Israel's law consisted of more than just legalese or legal code. There was history. Embedded in the law code is story, narrative. Here's who we are. Here's how we came from. Also embedded in the law is uh, our psalms and lyrics. It's fascinating. Israel's law included the genesis of Israel's judicial system. And Israel's judicial system came about through a conversation, coaching, evaluation between a father-in-law and a son-in-law. So what we're reading here is about a wise man who interacts with a vigorous leader of a younger generation. What we're reading here is about a wise man who sees Yahweh's greatness juxtaposed to human limitation. What we're reading here is an outsider who says what the insiders should have known. These verses help us answer the question, what quality of leadership will lead to justice in our society? That's what we're looking at. That's, what, that's what's happening in these verses at that place and at that time for us to learn. So there's a lot here, as you can tell. So let's look at the story of Exodus 18 and then get to the big idea. And, and while this is happening, please ask yourself, who am I in this story? Who am I in this story? All right, let's get into it. So at the beginning of Exodus 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came to Sinai in order to bring Moses' wife and sons to him. With all that had been going on, the plagues, the exodus, the Red Sea, Moses' wife and sons remained with Jethro for safety. But now that the dangers are past, there's a family reunion. Look at verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And so Moses honors Jethro by having him as a guest in his tent. That's what we see in verse 7. It says that Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And in verses 8 and 9, wow, we get privileged to just really listen in on, on a, a wonderful conversation uh, between a leader and a mentor, but also between a son-in-law and a father-in-law, a, a son and a father figure. Moses tells the story of the Exodus to Jethro. 
Jethro wasn't there. Tell me what's going on, son. Moses, Moses gets to be a son. Moses is sharing with this father-type figure his experiences and what he's witnessed and, and his relationship with God. What's going on in that tent is the fact that Moses isn't leading. Moses is just, he's not running anything inside that tent. He's not on. He's just recounting eyewitness testimony. Oh, Jethro, here's what happened to me, and here's what I did, and here's what I felt. And then there was a spiritual component. Here's what I learned about myself, about the Lord, about his faithfulness. Look at verse 8. All that the Lord had done, all the hardship they'd faced, and how God had delivered them. And all the while, Jethro just listened. What a gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. And in Anne Long's very helpful uh, pastoral book on listening, she wrote, there are times when what we need most is not words of advice or direction, but the knowledge that someone is there accepting us as we are, that we are not after all, alone. And if you lead, if you lead, you know how lonely leadership can be. So this was of incredible value to Moses to have someone like Jethro. And, and although Jethro was a guest in Moses' tent, actually Jethro was extending hospitality because that's what you do when you listen. You listen, and it's a, it was a way for Moses to process everything that had happened and even heal over what had transpired. But also, look at verse 9. It says that Jethro rejoiced. So Jethro was secure in himself and strong in his love for Moses to celebrate God's saving activity, which Moses and Israel had experienced. And his listening and his rejoicing led to a confession in, in verses 10 and 11. It was a confession of faith. Jethro declares, blessed be God who snatched you from Egypt. Now I know that Yahweh is greater. Oh, Moses, I believe, and not just you, I believe in the God you worship. He's the one true God. I mean, it's a touching scene of, of a father-in-law and a son-in-law who not only delights in the son-in-law, but God himself. This is about someone who saw an unprecedented divine reality showing itself on earth. There's a divine world at play here, a lawgiver worthy of worship. And that's what's happening in that tent. That tent became a, a, a time of worship and proclamation of praise. And, and it, was, it was culminated in a meal. You see that? Moses and the elders and Jethro, verse 12, they all, they had, there was a burnt offering, there was a covenant meal, Hebrew, non-Hebrew. One of the representatives of God's chosen people, the other, a representative of the nations. They're brought together through a meal in the presence of God. What does that remind you of? Another meal that we will share momentarily. For across the world are spiritual communities in Christ of life in which the nations gathered. You think, oh, sometimes we get feel, 
so frustrated because it's like we're the only ones here. No, there are millions of believers now gathering worldwide by the sacrifice of Jesus in holy communion and in worship and, and, and communion signifies the divine reality that has invaded this sinful world, a reality that rose bodily from death and whose lordship and spirit rests on this church, his body, the reality of Christ's church, Christ's exodus for us is remembered when we share communion. And we look ahead, too, to the, there will be another banquet in the new heavens and the new earth at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's in the book of Revelation. The best is, in fact, yet to come. So, yes, we can sing, it is good. He is good. He is good to me. So verses 1 through 12 set the stage for what's to come in verses 13 to 23. And you can't, you really can't understand what goes on in 13 to 23 if you haven't gone through verses 1 through 12. So now that we have, let's keep going. So in verses 13 to 23, Moses invites Jethro to the first ever bring your father-in-law to work day. And Moses takes his seat. I can just picture this, right? I can just picture this. He takes his seat, and there's dad looking off at the side. And, you know, the son is going, watch this, dad. Watch this. He wants his daddy to be proud of him, you know. He's got a father figure there. So Joe, Jethro stands off to the side, and he observes. What does he observe? Well, first he observes an inordinately long line of Israelites waiting to see Moses. He observes two groups approaching uh, at the same time. One group says, Moses, he ate my manna. Moses, my neighbor broke my wagon and won't fix it. Moses, this guy ripped my tent. Moses, this guy's son is getting fresh with my daughter. Moses, can you pray for me? Moses, can you explain more about the, our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? Moses, are we there yet? Are we there yet? This went on all day long. All day long. And by sunset, there was still a line. Come back tomorrow. Moses is exhausted. Exhausted. And on their way home, you know what, you know what Moses is going to say. What'd you think, Dad? What'd you think? What did you think? And Jethro, oh my goodness. Well, we already have heard appreciation from Jethro, right? He loves Moses. He cares about him. And he is about to surgically wound him with some well-timed questions. Right? Verse 14. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have some questions to ask you, Moses. Um, Question one. Now, what is it you think you're doing for the people? It's right there in verse 14. What is it that you are doing for the people? <laughs> and then, and then the, the question, why, why are you doing it this way? Why do you sit alone? Hmm. Key word, alone. 
Why do you feel like you have to be the only one? And Moses says, well, you know, the people want to know God's will. They, they know I've met with him and they meet with God. So they come to me and with their disputes and their questions about God. And I judge their disputes and teach them God's statutes. And, and verse 17, now we get the evaluation, right? Not good. What you're doing is not good. Now let me interpret that. It's not that what Moses was doing wasn't good. It was the way that Moses was doing what he was doing. That, that's what wasn't good. Yeah, Moses parted the Red Sea, but he was drowning in a sea of human need. He, he was stuck in the muck of a Moses-dependent system. And Jethro said to him, you cannot do this alone. Look, look at what this is doing to you. Verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you, you are not able to do it alone. You're exhausted. You're over 80. Aren't you tired? They're tired. I was tired watching this. Look at the line. It's too long. It's too long. Uh, clearly, Moses thought he was serving God and doing his job, and we can't really fault him too much because back in the day, in ancient monarchies, kings typically led troops into battle, and kings also served as kings, uh, as judges. And although Moses wasn't a king, you know, he was the recognized leader. And leaders tend to overextend. Guilty as charged. Leaders tend to overextend. And as a result, Moses got stuck working in the business when he should have been working on the business. And Jethro, who came and listened and rejoiced and confessed and observed, now offers wisdom. Moses, you have been given extraordinary gifts, and it's not this. You're no business manager. nor decision maker. You're a prophet. You're a shepherd. Your ministry is to help both insiders and outsiders focus their attention on God and his word. Listen to me. Even your best intentions will fail in a faulty system. And now comes the coaching. Verse 19, Moses, your role is to represent the people before God and to bring their cases to God. And the difficult cases, you're to teach God's word. Okay. Verse 20, you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. In other words, Moses, this is, you know, your role is, this is what God's word says, and here's what he wants us to do, and no one else can do that, Moses. That's your role. But here's what Israel can do. Verse 21, you find leaders, and here are the four qualities, capability, spirituality, integrity, incorruptibility. And you know what? I think only Jethro was the one who could tell Moses that. <laughs> Who's going to tell Moses? Who's going to say to Moses what Jethro could say to him? Because he's Moses. He parted the Red Sea. He must know everything. Well, we know better, right? 
Just because you can part the Red Sea doesn't make you an organizational guru. Right? Do you, do you have a Jethro in your life who can look you in the eye and say, what you're doing is not good? And they don't fear you? You don't intimidate them? And you know why you don't intimidate them? Because they love you. We already saw that. They rejoice over the, all the good that God, God is doing. And it is out of love then that they can say, what you're doing is not good. And then provide coaching. And so in taking Jethro's advice, this is, this is so wonderful. Moses created an appellate system. He structured lower courts and higher courts with himself being the supreme court. And they took the easier cases, and he took the most difficult cases. Verse 22, and let them judge the people at all times. Every matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Now, I told you earlier that this passage of Scripture reaches even into our world today. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Now, this is our structure in America, of our judicial system. And we have a, a two-tier system, okay? A two-branch system in the judiciary, all right? On the right side, we have state trial courts. There are intermediate appellate courts, and then there's a state Supreme Court, and then there's the U.S. Supreme Court, all right? And then on the yellow, you have U.S. district courts, and then the U.S. courts of appeals, and then the U.S. Supreme Court, all right? Where did that system originate? Right here, church. Right here. Well, what commentary did you get that from? I didn't get it from a commentary. I got it from a, a, a legal encyclopedia. According to an article titled Appellate Courts in a five-volume set, The Social History of Crime and Punishment in America, an encyclopedia, this is what it says. Appellate courts were instituted by Moses at the insistence of his father-in-law, Jethro. And then here is the next quote on that, from that encyclopedia, all right? At stake in an appellate system is the principle that justice allows for a second chance. So, so courtroom trials may occur, I'm still quoting, in conditions of passion and prejudice in ways that harm the fairness for the defendant. Errors over the questions of fact or law can and do occur. Appellate courts allow for a dispassionate review of questions of fact raised in the heat of trial or questions about whether the law was fairly or unfairly applied. Where did all that originate? Exodus 18. Isn't that wonderful? Now, note the three benefits in verse 23. God's direction, Moses' perseverance, and Israel's peace. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. These benefits don't appear by default. These benefits only appear through intentional, logical, thoughtful, meaningful processes supported by the community. So Moses took Jethro's advice to the letter. That's what we read in verses 24 to 27. And then the chapter concludes, then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Chapter 18. Big idea coming your way. 
Good leaders. Good leaders. Good leaders. Good people. Humbly take feedback to help God's people serve one another. Okay, Let's leave that up there for the rest of our time. Good leaders humbly take feedback to help God's people serve one another. Now, God's good in giving this. You know what we learn? You know what we learn about God in giving this? How he gives his will. So God, you know, I have to ask this question. You know, Lord, you will give Moses specific words like the Ten Commandments and the building plans for the tabernacle. Why didn't you just give Moses a judicial org chart? Why did you do that? And uh, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know that God, who is the ruler and creator of the universe, can as easily speak through a father-in-law as he can a burning bush. And God gives his will through the spectacle of Sinai. We'll see that in chapter 19. And more so through the way of wisdom. And we often discount that because it's not as snazzy. (laughs) But let me tell you something. This is about wisdom from the Lord through an unlikely source by which Israel would more fully unite as a nation. So if you're seeking God's will... Why don't you ask for a wise father-in-law figure before you ask for a burning bush? The burning bush might kill you. Now, who am I in this story? That's the question, right? Well, what's this? What, maybe, are you Jethro? Uh, Exodus notes that Jethro was Moses' father-in-law 12 times. Americans read that and say, I get it. Yeah, right. But, you know, to the original audience, the message is unmistakable. Yahweh is not merely the God of the Hebrews. He's the Lord of the nations. And as a Hebrew people, we don't treat every outsider as an enemy. Now, the Amalekites were in chapter 17, but Jethro is not. He sees Israel as an exodus community, a new reality. He wants to be be affiliated with it. And so when Moses testified to Jethro what God had, had done, Jethro was astonished. He rejoiced. He confessed. He was for Moses, and it was in that environment that Jethro was able to give helpful critique. He listened, he observed, he asked very helpful questions. Tell me what you're trying to do, and tell me why you do it. Jethro saw a problem, he sought to understand it, identified some growth areas and some solutions that preserved Moses and gave peace to the people. He really wanted Moses to thrive. And because of Jethro's approach, we're still telling this story over and over again about how an outsider brought wisdom and peace to Israel as well as sanity to Moses. Are you a Jethro? Oh, God bless you if you are. What's this tell us about Moses? Maybe you're Moses. So the message for you is, is humility. Humbly take the wisdom Moses could have said to his wife, Zipporah, your dad is killing me. Talk to him. First he wants to tell me how to parent the boys. Now he wants to tell me how to run the country. What's going on? Just be, you know, no. Just because he inscribed the Ten Commandments didn't make Moses the smartest person in the room. And Moses knew that. Good leaders, good people know when to change. When was the last time you said something like, you know what? You're right. You're right. Your thinking makes total sense. I should do it that way. 
It's better than what I've been doing. If you've never said that, one of two things. You're God, not. Or you struggle with pride. Nobody can think up the best ideas. And Moses was wise enough to see this was for his own benefit. Because is your pace, is your pace sustainable? Is it sustainable? It, we're seeing in Moses, he's wearing out. What? In chapter 17, verse 12, his hands grew weary. 18, 18, you are wearing yourselves out. You are wearing yourselves out. Now listen. Often when we hear feedback, we let it shake our identity. And what we learn from Moses is that your identity matters. And so when you see your primary identity as belonging to God, that God, what God thinks of me matters most. That God, that anything that happens to me, God sends, anything that happens to me has first gone through God to get to me. So that being the case, even if I get feedback from the anti-Jethro, I can then view that as welcome input, not an upsetting verdict. You'll see yourself as someone who is ever-growing. So how will this person's feedback, however terse, help me grow? For how I am now is simply how I am now. I'll analyze the feedback, however it comes for its value, about where I stand now, and then what to work on next. What if you're Israel? What if you're Israel? Well, God's weaning Israel from a Moses-centric leadership. So, and Israel needs to cooperate with that. So, you know, a qualified leader needs to help with the caseload, and Israel needs to be a part of the qualified leadership. I mean, I can imagine in a nation like Israel, someone saying, no, I don't want to see this judge. I want to see Moses. I want to see the person. I want to see Moses. Well, you know, Moses would love to preside over your case, but it's in your best interest that this other person hears your case. I mean, you really don't want Moses problem solving because, you know, he tried that earlier in the book of Exodus and it left an Egyptian dead and buried in the ground. You don't want to go there. Okay. Really. I used to do all the weddings and funerals and hospital calls and counseling here. I did. Um, can't. 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 My plate's not that big. Uh, when there's conflict resolution between members at Windsor Road Christian Church, and you call me and you say, hey, I, I want to sit down with Brother uh, Joe and work out this conflict, I'll say, thank you for calling. I'll have two elders sit with you because that's their role. That's their role. And you will meet with them and they will listen and pray and ponder and then coach and advise and appreciate and encourage. And the Israelites need to be willing participants in that system. So they, so, so they need to be willing to serve. And our, our elders, deacons, deaconesses, small groups, teachers, guest services, family life, you know, we will never have enough help for all of the needs that must be done. So, and, and you know what? I want to tell you, in so many ways, our church family is excelling. 
And, and I sensed that last week as you were exchanging uh, uh, notes of gratitude to one another. In fact, how you encouraged one another with thank yous and, 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 and loving each other. Last week, one of you wrote a note of gratitude and brought it to another person who was writing to that person. Isn't that wonderful? See, that's the Holy Spirit working to unite this church into a Christ-centric church, not a Randy-centric church. And that's what we want. So who are you? Jethro? Moses? The Israelites? Whoever you are, last sentence, let each of you use whatever giftedness God has given to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace so that in all things God may be glorified in Jesus Christ and his church said, amen.